Hello and welcome to the Deciphered Podcast by Bain & Company. This is a brand new show, so thanks so much to you guys for giving us a go. Uh, On this podcast, we will unpack the stats to give you an in-depth perspective on different topics relating to fintech and the financial services industry. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Davis, and I'm an associate partner at Bain & Company. Our first show focuses on the intersection of retail and finance, covering the phenomena that is buy now, pay later. To join me in trying to find out what the future of the BNPL industry holds, I'm joined by three great guests. Uh, first up uh, is the author of Bain's report into the BNPL industry, uh, called Buy Now, Pay Later, Customers Delight Regulators Challenge, uh, which was released last year. Uh, Mr. Ryan Garner, how are you doing, Ryan? Very good. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, good. I'm preparing to go stateside. So I'm in that kind of like process of finishing off work in London and preparing to to travel abroad. So all's good. Nice. First travel for a while, I would imagine. So good luck with that. Yeah, a long time. And joining the two of us, uh, first up is Nigel Verdon, who's the CEO and co-founder of Railsbank. Nigel, how are you doing? Good, thank you. And uh, thanks for bearing with me with all the rushing back from the airport a moment ago. Yeah, no worries at all. I was just saying off air that I think uh, when you first start a podcast, the first ever episode, everyone tells me that something always goes wrong. And Nigel, I thought that could have been it, but <laughs> but, we're, but we've we've persevered, which is great. And it's uh, it's great to have you on. And then by last, but by no means least, uh, Alex Lang, who's the GM Director of Product for Debit Plus for a firm. Alex, how are you doing? Doing well. Good morning from California. It's uh, nice to be here with you all. It's great to have you. And I might be mistaken, but I don't think I am. This is your first ever podcast. That's correct. So thanks for bearing with me. But um but I think we're going to have a great conversation. Yeah, it's a series of firsts. So uh, in a, all for one and one for all and all that. Right, we'll, we'll move on to the uh, the first section. So this is kind of a bit of an anomaly, but at Bain, we've got something called the answer first, which is essentially having, a, I guess, a relatively formed quick answer to answer a question using sort of the collective, I guess, facts and stats and brains from Bain. And we're going to adapt this a little bit for the podcast and ask you guys, the guests, for your quick answer first on the top line question. So uh, Alex, I'll probably come to you first. So the question is divergence or convergence. What is the short term future of the BNPL industry? Ooh, option C, growth. I'm going with convergence. <laughs> the NPL is really becoming mainstream. It's still relatively a small part of global online commerce. You know, right now it's accounting for 2.9% of global e-com transaction value over the year 2021, but it's projected to reach 5.3% of share by 2025. It's growing very quickly. We're seeing BNPL really become a tool for everyday spend and moving into physical purchases. You know, we as consumers are transitioning out of COVID, where e-commerce purchasing behavior increased. But now we really all see a blended online, offline, omni-channel experience that shifts away from this idea of BNPL for e-commerce only. BNPL is becoming a powerful product and not just a financial feature. We at Affirm are preparing to launch our Debit Plus card product, and that is converging debit and BNPL. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, Nigel, I'll come to you. Sure. I think the concept of almost turning uh, goods into a subscription, which essentially buy no pay later is, it's a sort of limited time subscription where you get ownership at the end. And the, and the actual product's been around for ages. It's, it used to be called installment loans. So the, uh, the concept of making it accessible and useful for people and bringing in ways of making almost instant uh, authorization for it. And, and I quite like the, the, the firm. We've got so similar investors to a firm or the, uh, back to us and back to firm. The, uh, the, the concept of an account that can have a buy no pay later loan or installment loan attached to it or subscription attached to it, and you can access it through debit card 
is something we, do, we can do today. And that, that shows you that if you bring all the different components, it doesn't have to be just rolled up into a loan. There's a payment uh, tool. You can put it into, uh, into the metaverse in, in similar sort of ways if you wanted to. And just literally just gotten back from the World Retail Congress, which was large areas of discussion were about what is buy now, pay later? Is it changing the consumer to be a subscription consumer? And is that, so you get out of the, some of the regulatory pieces, because say you're subscribing to the television, for example, and it's a 10-month subscription, you renew a subscription, your television renews. So it's like Apple with their phones and everything. So I think there's other ways of looking at it, but it's definitely here to stay. And Alex, I'm probably more bullish uh, than those numbers as well, because it's a, it's a new way of people interacting, I think, uh, and ownership. Cool. And uh, Ryan, I'll ask you the same thing around divergence or, uh, or convergence in the short term. Yeah, in the short term, I still think we're diverging. If we look at last year, 2021 was was the explosive growth year for for buy now, pay later. And I think in in the first half of 2022, we're still going to see that. There are so many new companies coming into this space, so many new product announcements. It's it's really exciting to see the amount of innovation that's happening here. Now, as we go through 2022, there's going to be some interesting macroeconomic pressures that will challenge the, the industry, the unsecured lending industry more broadly, not just the buy now, pay later industry. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how that, how that pans out. And I think we might start to see some form of convergence then, either through kind of M&A activity or some of those companies just falling out of the market. But I think it's super exciting times for buy now, pay later. And just generally the, that convergence of fintech and retail coming together and creating these new experiences for customers that are now possible in, in the kind of digital economy that we live in today. Cool. All good answers. And I think, Ryan, we'll, we'll probably stick with you as we go to the main part of the show. We're going to kind of structure this, I guess, with delving into the background of buy now, pay later for a little bit, then also just talking, I guess, about the current state, and then we'll talk about future projections a little bit later on in, in the podcast. Ryan, to start us off, and Nigel, you mentioned it just before that BNPL has been around in sort of in, in various guises for, for ages. So for the audience, set the scene. It has been around forever, right? Yeah, buy now, pay later has been around for a long time. I mean, I remember when I was younger seeing, you know, adverts on television to buy a new sofa and you could buy net, get it now and, and pay for it after Christmas or whenever that advert was on. You know, buy now, pay later has been around for a very, very long time. I think what's different now is that it doesn't just exist in the kind of instalment lending for big, quite heavy purchases like a sofa, but it exists in a digital world. And there are now embedded within those digital journeys. And so Buy Now Pellet has become a, a product into itself. And I think there's a big difference. And this is what we kind of focused on in the report we published at the end of last year. The difference between buy now, pay later as a financial product from instalment lending and from credit cards. They're all forms of, of unsecured lending in just a kind of a different form. And buy now, pay later is typically free to the consumer. There is no interest charges on a buy now, pay later purchase. And it's typically for low to medium size value purchases. And then we've got installment lending, which is still there. It's still installment lending is still really important part of kind of retail unsecured lending. But that typically comes with a, a price to consumers. There's a there's an interest rate for that. It's typically medium to high value purchases over longer periods of time. And then there are credit cards, and we all know what credit cards are. They've been around for a long time. But in in many countries around the world, there are lots of hybrid credit card buy now pay later solutions knocking about as well, where you've got buy now pay later functionality on on a credit card which then comes back to 
Nigel's point around this whole concept of there being an interesting crossover between subscriptions and buy now pay later is buy now pay later or is subscriptions a use case of buy now pay later product which i think is is a very interesting point of discussion just picking up on one of the things you talked about there and alex i'll probably direct this one towards yourself i think critical to any buy now pay later installment lending proposition is having good credit modules. I was just wondering, from a firmer perspective, what approach have you guys taken today? And then more broadly, how do you see that kind of those models expanding as as the use cases expand for buy now, pay later? You're definitely right. It is critical. So if we think about how traditional business models work, credit card credit cards give a customer a line and consumers spend on that line. And then performance delinquencies happen to them. Oftentimes, a customer can be sitting on a line for six months, a year, two years before they begin to see delinquencies on that credit card. At Affirm, we are evaluating individual transactions and can just be much more precise. We underwrite every transaction individually before we extend access to credit by incorporating a variety of inputs. Delinquencies are an input to our decision-making, not just an output. And we choose acceptable levels based on the economics of our business. And why is that an advantage? As you think about why the criticality of these models determines our success, well, it means that we've got lots and lots of little approvals and lots and lots of little delinquency signals. And I I will continue to say lots again because I really do mean lots. We start measuring delinquencies when the consumer is first four days late. We measure again when they are 30 days late and so on and so forth, which really means that we have an understanding every 34 days. So 34 days after a loan is originated, and we see that every single day. And that takes, I'm assuming, a pretty decent support team to be able to monitor and track and and respond to, which we, again, we'll come on to in a, in a sec. Nigel, just directing the next question towards you, sitting, I guess, in the intersection as, as you do across multiple payment rails and in, in sort of the core layer, in your opinion, what's led to the rise of BMPL I guess, in its current state. So is it just technological enablement or is there is there more going on that's seen this rise and, you know, certainly from from a public consciousness sees the rise in popularity of the product? Sure. Uh, if you look at from consumers' uh, perspective, uh, people don't wake up and say, I'm going to buy some buy no pay later or I want some buy no pay later at all because consumers want experiences. They want to buy a television so they can watch football. They want to, uh, to be able to buy a toaster because they, they want to have amazing toast or they just like eating toast. So the, the concept of, of if you look at through the eyes of the consumer, you enable them to do something and experience they want. And uh, prior to uh, sort of the, the, the growth of amazing companies like Affirm and others is uh, the sort of the, the unsecured lending, you tend to pop out and into somebody else's UX and journey and everything like that, and there's all this uh, uh, overhead of, except for something like Wonga, uh, uh, overhead of, of accessing the money and going through all the, the approvals and everything. And so the, the journey was not great for the consumer, and hence you got drop-offs and everything. So it, it's the ability to put relevant financing at a point in a customer's journey where they need it, make it totally seamless, and make it totally relevant to what they actually want to achieve, which is to get the television. 
or to get something else. And you look at, uh, at cars, for example, slightly bigger, bigger ticket item. If you, I've, I, it's a total bugbear of mine because people don't wake up wanting to buy car loans. You've probably heard me rabbit on about this continuously on, on uh, various parts of the social media. But the look at Auto One in Germany and uh, to an extent Kazoo and some others. Uh, if you can select and buy the car and finance it and it gets delivered to you next morning, that's an amazing experience. And consumers want experiences. That's what drives their behaviour. Buy now, pay later is not so much about people go and think about it as a consumer. A consumer says, I've got this. That means I don't have to pay over this period of time. They don't realise they're using BMPL. They're actually using a way of paying for the television over a period of time, and it's X amount per month. And I, in my budget, in my head, boom, I'm there. So it's a, it's a consumer experiencing that's really driven this change is just my observation on and that's what we, we, we hook into that, that, that sort of way of uh, putting finance and in, embed it into a, a customer experience uh, rather than just talk about uh, payments and things. Now the payments piece you, you mentioned, we, 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 are, uh, we sit in, uh, we can issue bank accounts, we sit in most of uh, payments rails because we're in Visa, MasterCard, UK Faster Payments and everything. So we've got direct access to the core data and all that. All that behavioural data is very useful, massively useful input for, for underwriting. Because if you've got somebody doing other bits and pieces in their life as well uh, around the, the account, you've got some very good tells. And it's coming back to Alex's point about looking at all the different signals you get from behaviour. I'm, I'm an ex-trader. And we used to do this in the 1990s when it all came out, when you, all the quant traders and everything else uh, started appearing. And the same thing, you're looking for signals, and those signals combine to give a, a, a general steer on the defaultability or the, the, uh, the bullishness of the stock or whatever else you happen to be looking at uh, at the time. So it's these micro-signals and taking that sort of quant trading approach to it uh, and, and then having a curve. I love fact that um, it's just said that delinquency is something we, we, we embrace because you've got a curve and then you run your book, uh, your trading book, your credit book or your equity book within that curve. So it's consumer behaviour, massive amounts of calculations and, uh, and uh, understanding the behaviour and, and, and the person and sometimes you can go out to the psychology of the individual too because you can tell whether they're introvert or extrovert depending on what they're buying uh, and things if you've got SKU data for example. Uh, that together combines into something that uh, to, that is why BMP buy now pay later is super exciting uh, to us, rather than just just traditional uh, unsecured lending. Great, I think that sums it up. That sums it up pretty well. But from a, I guess a, a data perspective, in terms of the data and analytics teams that you've got running both at Rails and and at a firm, how big and how dense are those teams at the moment, and how do they sort of p- per person, I guess, stack up from a, a numbers perspective to the rest of the organisation? Because it sounds like that's where, if you like, the, the crunch of, of what you're doing is coming to fruition. So I'd, I'd love to get just a view on that in terms of uh, from a numbers perspective or, or just, you know, dynamically how the DNA, if you like, team fits within um, within your companies. After you, Alex. Sure. It's, um, it's a great question because it's not just data and analytics. If you look at the machine within a firm, that's actually powering our ability to decision on a momentary basis to customize the solutions that are different for individual customers, but also for individual merchant partners. We have a credit risk organization. We have a machine learning business and engineering organization. And we have a product organization that is dedicated 
to evolving and experimenting and monitoring on a daily basis how our underwriting continues to grow, we see billions of points of data. And a firm has a decade of building our data suite for the behavior that we've observed. So it's not just what is the staffing by the numbers for our data and analytics organization. It's really a whole company effort. But it's really important to understand the quality of our model development process. We bring together the algorithms, the data, and these previous iterations of the model to advance the effectiveness of the next model. And in short, we've doubled our headcount over the last year. Cool. And Nigel, do they sound like, I suppose, repeatable models within RailsBank as well? Look, the firm are years ahead of us at the at the moment in terms of we're, we're launching it uh, fully in Q4 this year. But to, to give an, an example, the same team as, as Alex would be the same answer. We've got product team, we've got data team, we've got uh, data team also has AI team in it, we've got transaction monitoring, it's the same team, the monitoring of what's going on in something. Uh, then you've got the service, you've got cap and markets piece at the back end uh, for securitization and things. So the, uh, you've got a, a whole set of teams. If I look at just our basic uh, banking and cards business, we've got 530 people in the company. 102 of those are on all the compliance, fin crime and everything else on the back end of that. And uh, because it is, uh, it's a massive part of the business is understanding your transactions, the fraud within them, the opportunity in them, the underwriting piece, which is another piece that comes in with central lending. And so all of that together, we see as, a, as the operational side of the business. And the way we look at it is we love operations. We love op- uh, sort of optimizing them with machines. And everything, and uh, we have massive subscribers to the way Amazon approaches the same problem. And we, um, our leadership teams are coached by uh, some of the senior well, people who've been in Amazon 22 years or so, and using all that to drive your decisioning. The only caveat I'll say is, uh, having seen algos go totally wrong in the capital markets uh, in certain market conditions, and suddenly you've got massive losses brought up, and there's quite a few sort of eggs on faces like uh, Morgan Stanley a few years ago, that type of thing happening. You still need uh, the human part of oversight to understand, is the algo really handling a change in market conditions uh, of consumer behavior, of fraud spots that are coming up? So the, the machine does need some oversight itself as well on the algos because it's not just algos do it. And it had a fascinating discussion about algos in, uh, in with the retailers uh, this morning, basically this morning, say this morning of, at, uh, in, in Rome. And uh, the general conclusion was algos are great for, for taking you to a certain level, but when you need to really understand the consumer at a micro level, which I think you do on this type of business, it's, it's not a, about a, a broad brush, a sort of uh, averaging and uh, medians and, me- uh, and uh, type, type, uh, type business. It's about the real advantage is deeply understanding that person and where they fit within the actual bell curve and everything. And uh, sometimes you've got to have a bit of human and psychology behind it, not just pure mathematicians. And, that, and that's where we look at it. So we've got a large number of people on that in our existing business. There'll be probably a similar amount in, uh, from, the, from the credit side. Great. Let's move on to, I guess, the current state of BNPL. So in the report that, uh, Ryan, you, you wrote and launched last year, you said that transaction value through buy now, pay later, this was in the UK, bear in mind, hit 6.4 billion or 5% of the total e-commerce market in 2020. 
I guess I'll start maybe with Alex for a slightly different perspective, just on the US market. Does that stat surprise you? And and where do you see it heading in the US now and potentially in the next couple of years? Sure. Um, No, it doesn't. You know, first, the UK has consumers that greatly appreciate more flexibility and convenient payment methods like BNPL. And listen, as a millennial, I can relate to the generations here in the US that saw the financial crisis and don't want to put it all on the card moving forward, as a lot of us went through what that means when you're in a different financial situation. The ability to access credit right now from a company like a firm that offers a transparent product with no deferred or compounding interest, no late fees, it's becoming more and more important. And as Ryan mentioned earlier, in this increasing environment of macroeconomic uncertainty, the ability for customers to have access to this credit for the individual needs that may arise is only going to continue to grow. As we think about growth in the U.S. and and we look at Affirm itself, in the 12 months ending in December 31st, 2021, Affirm alone in the U.S. facilitated $12 in gross merchandise volume. For a quarter ending at that same time frame, Affirm increased active merchants, meaning merchants who've integrated our solution, by 2,030% year over year, growing from 8,000 merchants to 168,000. That gross merchandise volume also grew 115% year over year. And our active customer base grew 150% year over year to 11.2 million customers today. You know, really, again, going back to what, what Ryan said about customers looking for options for those more frequent purchases and the subscription you know, example that Nigel raised is is true. And we're and we're already seeing that in this external beta of our debit product where customers are looking for the purchasing power of a firm to fit in to these daily transactions. Yeah, that's some some really interesting stats and some phenomenal growth numbers across last year, which is uh, which again we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more in in the future section. Ryan, I'll probably come to you just about. We've just heard the you know the, the rise in consumer preference to use BMPL at checkout. With regards to merchants, though, and, and I guess the merchant benefits. So uh, I know seventy-one percent of merchants. Again, this was in the paper. Said that consumers expect them to offer BNPL as an option at checkout. What I guess are aside from I guess consumer pressure, which is building. What I guess are some of the other merchant benefits that they they have if they hold a, a buy now pay later option at checkout, and and how do you see those evolving as well? Yeah, I think to fully understand the merchant benefits, we have to just extend the customer story a little bit further. So we've talked a lot about the enablement benefits from a customer perspective, you know, being able to get access to free lending, not revolving balances, making that free interest and all of those things. But there's another story here for customers. And that is that these buy now, pay later providers like a firm, if you go onto a firm's website right now, you can look for something that you want to buy. They're becoming platforms. They're becoming the starting point of your shopping journey when you're looking for something to to purchase. Um, And I think that's a really important step as fintech and retail start to converge. Now, that story is really important because as we start to get to the merchant story, the merchant story historically for kind of any kind of unsecured lending product has been well, we can increase average order value for you. We can help you drive conversion and, um, and and those kind of core checkout metrics. And that's been around for a long time. What we're starting to see is the value proposition that buy now, pay later firms have for merchants is diversifying. Those things are still strong, but it's also about customer acquisition because buy now, pay later companies can say, well, we've got a huge consumer brand. 
we've got a huge consumer base. We've got lots of throughput on our, on our platform. We can bring those customers to you. And so there are kind of co-marketing activities that can, that can take place. There, the websites of Affirm.com, Klarna, all the big kind of uh, afterpay, all the big buy now, pay later providers can provide points of discovery for consumers looking for things and drive traffic to their merchant customer websites. So there's a whole part of the value proposition for merchants, which is these buy now, pay later companies can help drive customer acquisition. And going back to the data point, Data is obviously very important for assessing credit worthiness, but also it could also be used for um, improving the customer experience and driving personalized offers and all of those things. And so the whole thing, the two-sided nature of buy now, pay later is fascinating and it's creating huge new benefits for consumers and a whole new value proposition for merchants, which I think is super powerful. Oh, and Ryan, I couldn't agree more. One of the things that Alex and Adam is, what everybody's saying is, you know, Amazon's flywheels, which is like drive sort of customer activity, you drive traffic, you then increase conversion, you increase reactivation, that creates more traffic to you. So you get that side of thing. It is a absolutely beautiful flywheel for all parts of the ecosystem. So if you, if you see Bezos sitting there going, hmm, that's something we would like <laughs> and they're going to because it is about it's about traffic, drive traffic, activation, so reactivation, conversions, spend, and then people coming point. So that uh, so that, that is the, the point I was gonna make is you, you do go to all the sites as your starting point because you, you drive in reactivations and uh, and conversions. Yeah, and, and Nigel, I think that's right. We are seeing today the ability for brands sponsored promotions within the Affirm two-sided network. So our closest merchant partners have the ability to activate on a more item level basis to personalize offers for customers. Cool. And I wanted to ask, Nigel, probably in, in your perspective, and again, just, just talking about what, the points that you've raised thus far, do you see, I guess, retailers in general as a part of their, I guess, their payment strategy? Where does BMPL fit in? So, you know, is this now an absolute must-have or is this, you know, something that, you know, if if you're a retailer and you want to grow, this is the vehicle to do it? Is this sort of, I guess, the silver bullet? I, I'd really be interested to get your thoughts on where you think this fits. So I, I, I'm going to come back to good old flywheels because that's, that's what drives economic performance. And uh, economic and, and customer satisfaction and everything. So, buy now, pay later by itself is vaguely useful. It's the the data is massively useful to to the merchant. The fact that if you've got somebody installing doing installments, you've got multiple points you can communicate to that consumer because just uh, random emails coming to them always get totally dropped off. If you're saying something to your installments due, here's something else you might be liking and everything. So you've got increased marketing points as well. Put that all the way around is also the way of more traffic being generated and existing customers being, being able to uh, be reactivated. And what's the ultimate thing that, uh, that uh, merchants want? It's the third purchase. And this is through retail in its history. If you've got a, customer, if you've got a consumer who buys three times, you've got a consumer for life. And that's where there's bricks and mortar uh, and, and, and the days of exchanging like chickens and goats all the way to BMPL today and everything. So that, that flywheel, just, just by itself, it's uh, unsecured lending, whatever is, 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 is useful. 
create flywheels around it. And this is why these businesses are so, so exciting, because they're creating real economic flywheels that benefit the merchant, that benefit the consumer as well. They sort of freak out the regulator a little bit, but uh, they'll, they'll get used to it and, and catch up and everything. So that, that's why I see it's really, it's, it's the ecosystem that's created rather than just the product. And Alex, I, I wanted to get your uh, your thoughts before we go to the final section, just on, a little bit on, I guess, wh- where the costs lie for enablers. And so uh, what I'm kind of interested in is, you know, we, we've heard in the press a lot around uh, that BMPL enablers are sort of operating on razor thin margins and, you know, what's the impact of interest rates going to do with that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I wanted to kind of get a view from you of where where your biggest cost base sits. And then I guess how, it, as you as you scale and grow, you could look to potentially remove some of that cost base. And and I'm, I'm sort of interested in, you know, is it in sales, is it in the marketing or, or, or something more structural to the product? Sure. As I've mentioned, the real core competency here at Affirm is the strength of our underwriting, of our ability to accept risk through our algorithms, through the billions of points of data we collect. And in this hyper growth mode, most of our investments have been focused on hiring engineering talent and on strengthening our platform to meet this rapid scale. Alongside, we're investing in sales and marketing to capitalize on those growth opportunities. All of that requires constant evolution from a product and engineering organization to make sure that we maintain that scalability and that flexibility for all merchants that want to work with us. And our unit economics are attractive. If you look at our revenue, less our transaction costs, those grew 93% for our most recent period, while revenue grew 77%. Cool. Yeah. Good numbers. <laughs> Good numbers. Let's uh, let's move on to the final uh, part of the show, which is really just looking at the, at the future, I guess. And we've delved into it a little bit previously, but just to hone in on it. Ryan, I was going to come to you in terms of, uh, again, just re- referencing back to the paper. There's a stat in there that says that BNPL will continue to grow at around 60 to 70% annually across the next three to five years. We're, what, six months or so after the paper was written, maybe a little bit less. Do you still think that's realistic? And if, if so, why? Yeah, I think so. If you look at some of the markets that have the highest share of payment volumes from buy now, pay later, you're looking at the likes of Sweden and Germany, where you've got kind of 20% plus of all payment volumes. This is e-com payment volumes done through buy now, pay later. You look at the likes of the UK, it's at 5%. You look at the likes of the US, it's around 2%. So there is huge room for growth there. And ultimately, what's driving that growth is some macro conditions around the convergence of fintech and e-commerce. And, and those two things come in together. We're finding new aggregators and discovery points for kind of buying things. And, and ultimately, I think there's a generational shift happening. Well, I don't think we, we found it in the report. In the UK, if you look at Gen Zs, there are a greater proportion of those using buy now, pay later than they are using credit cards. That's a huge finding. You don't find that in any other generation or age cohort. It's among Gen Zs. And that is a generational shift away from traditional unsecured lending or credit products towards something that's more digitally native and integrated into their day-to-day retail customer journeys. And that's something that's going to drive that growth long-term as well. And that's not just a UK thing. On our MPS Prism data, we're seeing similar kind of generational shifts in the US. So that kind of 2% of, of, of all e-com payment volumes by buy now, pay later that was recorded last year, that's going to significantly move. So I do think the growth will continue. 
There is obviously one caveat, and we don't quite know how the economic situation is going to play out, whether we're going to, it's going to plateau and inflation is going to plateau at where it is or if it's going to accelerate. Obviously, those thing, kind of things could impact the growth of buy now, pay later. But ultimately, the other big drivers of the, of the market are still fundamentally there and they're structural. Mm. We get a lot of inbounds at Bain from different organizations who are looking into this space and want to know what they should do and you know wh- where's the first starting point. And I guess, Nigel, I'll, I'll probably come to you with the next question, which is who in the world, I guess, of both retail and finance should be getting into this game? Who isn't? And I'm, obviously, don't, don't, don't name check companies necessarily, but the type of company that, that should be looking at this who potentially isn't right now? Uh, sports clubs is one. For example, who defaults on their sports club? For example, so uh, we've been looking at this uh, quite extensively. Uh, where do you get tribal behaviour, and from the consumer? And for example, uh, the, the the price of season tickets now is insane, uh, and so your club can help you, uh, type of thing. So that's that's one area. And there's other uh, sort of tribal type. Uh, we call them micro economies. Uh, if you said embedded finance economy is an 800 billion revenue uh, opportunity as opposed to market cap. Within that, you've got fan bases, you've got retail shoppers, you've got travellers, and all these micro-economies are areas that you need to look into where the buy now, pay later flywheel can actually take effect. And it'll take effect in slightly different uh, ways, uh, type of thing. So that is where, uh, we, where we look at it. And I think uh, if you're asking me which company you should be looking at, sports should be definitely looking at it. Uh, retailers are going to have to go through this massive change. We just released some research, uh, as I was talking about on stage this morning, about the new types of persona that has appeared post-COVID. And one of those personas is uh, like my father, who now is digitally enabled uh, to buy e-commerce and things. And he finds it amazing. And he gets a bit carried away at times and things, but they're here to stay. And so there's a big learning of people. So the Gen Z was probably the first piece to do its part of life. Now there's other people because of COVID and the, the, the macro change there who will use that as well. And, and it's conversion. They're sort of be working out how you actually sell to that type of type of individual, and how it's useful. They tend to have more money, therefore the installments aren't so much an issue to them. But there, there may be other usefulness for them if you figure out what the the killer value prop to them is. So that's uh, uh, pretty much anywhere you can take a look at and just work out the economics. Can a flywheel be built within these microeconomies within the better finance economy? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it, you're looking at such a broad a broad sphere of consumers that will you know, undoubtedly, you know, use this as potentially probably their, their primary source of uh, e-commerce payment. And and I guess, Alex, on that theme, wouldn't therefore, if you're a, I guess, a merchant of a, or a retailer or a marketplace probably is maybe even a better example of a, of a significant size, w- wouldn't you just say to yourself, well, actually, you know, this is the opportunity for us to in-house some of this stuff or, you know, try and spread across the value chain as much as we possibly can? And I guess, given where you guys sit, have you seen that yet, or do you think that's coming? Yeah, um, it's a it's a dialogue. I imagine a lot of companies are having as we all look at the growth in this space, and we have many partners here at a firm that have exceptional engineering teams, and they've decided to partner with a firm to deliver this product to their customers. We've invested a decade in building this proprietary technology and underwriting from the ground up. You know, anybody can divide by four 
And if you wanted to offer four biweekly installments, it's easier to underwrite and doesn't require as much capital markets expertise. But if you want to do what a firm does in our ability to address a wider range of transactions and the technology solutions that we bring to bear, we can build custom products. It's much more difficult. We've talked about the speed and the rapid growth, and that's a real driver for, for partners of ours wanting to work with us to get a solution out the door. I think a good example is that a firm has built shop pay installments for Shopify, and it was built specifically to meet the needs of Shopify's hundreds of thousands of merchants and their millions of consumers. Shop pay installments not only has no late fees, but it also delivers a 30% faster checkout experience. And we saw that one in four merchants that used shop pay installments during its early access saw a 50% higher average order volume compared to other payment methods. Impressive. So I, I guess given that, and uh, and Ryan, I'll probably point this one at you. There are, I mean, if you're looking at more retailers who are going to get into this game, you're looking at more enablers that are also looking to support those retailers and platforms. I know on dealroom.com, uh, there was a stat, I think it came out only last week. So this is pretty new that it said there were over 200 direct-to-consumer BNPL providers that have received around 10 billion in funding of, across the last year. Plus, you know, as we know, you've got banks like Monzo and Zopa and Revolut who have looked at this and are looking to build that sort of internal credit uh, installment builder, you know, backdated on your transactions. Nat West was in the news last week talking about how they're getting into the game uh, on the retail side with regards to buy now, pay later, probably in a similar fashion, but we're yet to see. And then Apple were also in the game, you know, via the Apple card and the various ways that, that you can use buy now, pay later on that. I guess, are there too many players or is this, uh, is it all coming from sort of all angles? And given that, are we looking at sort of commoditization and therefore a reduction and competitive, you know, impact on the take rates and the shares that these enablers that can, uh, c- can come on? I think we're just seeing the natural evolution of new markets where a new market emerges. There are lots of players in that market and eventually the number of competitors in that space will will shrink down. And it comes back to your opening question, Adam, about um, divergence and convergence. We are clearly still in that divergence kind of phase, given the numbers you've just quoted around the number of companies on deal room doing direct-to-consumer buy now, pay later. And those are probably just the, the, the finance firms. They're not the, the retailers embedding financial services at the point of sale and going direct-to-consumer on buy now, pay later as well. So I think the number of users will continue to grow. I think we might hit peak number of providers at some point soon. And I think we'll start to kind of flip into that convergence mode at some point soon. But the, the the variety of ways that we're seeing buy now pay later products manifest themselves is 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 just super interesting. I think that's a great point, Ryan. On the variety of manifestation, the user growth really drives how we're seeing these players enter the space. Right? We saw banks that said that it was a fad and not a threat to now launching their new well, they offerings. Said fintech was a fad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but honestly, what I worry about is that there are so many players getting into this space and labeling something as BNPL and then doing all the types and tricks and gotchas that a firm's trying to eliminate. So late fees, deferred interest, credit line, hard credit checks are often being introduced in these new products that are introducing confusion to customers who really, as they look at BNPL, might not be aware of kind of the fundamental underlying constructs for what they're signing up for. Yeah. 
Uh, so yes, there's a market. There's plenty of people coming in, and it's same as they said, the banking as a service and whatever market, and especially in the US where it's pretty much a software-only market. There's now tons of uh, people with banking APIs, and there's nothing really different. They're all banking APIs. They issue account, receive money, send money. That's the basics of it. And the same sort of thing. And to, to Alex's point, there's tons of people coming in and uh, doing stuff behind the scenes that was not hugely uh, great for the consumer, which makes a firm difference. It's great for the consumer. So, the uh, where our sort of view on when you get these type of markets where there's been a proliferation. The consolidate is the people who are the, the full value turnkey stacks. And that is deep understanding of underwriting, a lot of uh, uh, experience, clear operations, a great value prop and product at the top end of it. And they sell the value prop and not all the bells and whistles. A lot of these guys are selling, here's all the functionality we do. They're not selling, this is a great customer experience mm. and we'll drive you revenue. And uh, so that's a clear value problem. You don't really care about uh, what all the functionality is as long as it does what the consumer wants and the merchant wants as well. So I think full st- people who've, got, who've gone full stack, well, operations, regulation, capital, all the way through, uh, will uh, traditionally sort of sit on top of the just the pure software-only guys and the sort of feature guys. And I think it's worth us talking about regulation quickly here. There's lots happening in regulation, um, but I think... It's a really important subject for the industry that's worth touching on, especially given what Nigel and Alex have just talked about with a number of different companies coming into the market. And some of those companies operating in many different ways to some of the more established companies that have been in in the industry for a while. Now, regulators are all about customer protection. And if we're going to have sustainable growth that we've been talking about, and back to your question, Adam, you know, is this is this growth going to continue? It's only going to continue if we have those safeguards for consumers and we standardize the process so customers know exactly what kind of credit check they're going to get, for example. And they know that when they use a buy now, pay later service, that they are taking some form of credit and they are going to have to pay that back. And the messaging is all simplified and and clear. There's a lot that the regulators are going to dig into here. It's a really important subject. It's going to happen this year and it's going to be a key part of the uh, evolution of the industry as we come back to your first point, Adam, around divergence and convergence. Cool. And we'll wrap it up there. It's a good point to wrap it up on. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of Deciphered. I'm just going to go around and just ask our panellists where uh, we can find uh, you and, and what's the best way to get in contact. Uh, so Nigel, uh, starting with yourself. I'm the only Nigel Verdon, I believe, on LinkedIn. So that should be pretty easy, hopefully. Your PR team's been hard at work, Nigel, making sure that's the case. Uh, I think it's my parents. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, what about yourself? Yes, Alexandra Lang on LinkedIn. Please connect. Would love to continue the dialogue. And um, also check out affirm.com slash debit. Our, uh, our wait list for our upcoming launch is live. And if you're in the US, we'd, uh, we'd love to have you on board. Cool. And uh, Ryan, yourself? Yeah, Ryan Garner on, on LinkedIn and also Ryan Garner on, on Twitter, if that's uh, your preferred one. Uh, channel and i'm uh, i'm adam d8 on twitter on linkedin just adam davis and uh, i should shout out the url for the fintech team at bain which does exist but it's really long so i'd probably just recommend going to bain.com and then just searching for fintech and you'll find us there <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much uh, if you enjoyed that please leave us preferably five star review uh, on apple and spotify and also uh, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode going forward and uh, we'll see you next time for more